you're listening to the Right About Now Poetry Podcast. My name is Davis Land, and this week we are featuring Button Poetry, Sam Cook, Dylan Garrity, and Hugh Wynn. They stopped by Right About Now a few months ago and dropped words and poems all over the place. Button Poetry publishes chapbooks, they put out poetry videos, and just in general, they promote poetry all over the place. So we are so excited to have them on right about now today. I'm just gonna jump into doing poems and not banter to y'all because I hate you. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. See, some of y'all got the joke, okay. On the American scale of suburban dog walker to back alley mugger, Asian people usually clock in around an all-you-can-eat buffet or piano prodigy if we're lucky. Depends on who you ask, I guess. Depends on whose eyes are calibrating this body between busboy and triad. What I'm trying to say is race is the first thing people usually notice about me. On a scale of effeminate to masculine, or depending on the eyes, flaming to straight, I usually clock in around a neutral to who the fuck cares, depending on the night, I guess, depending on what I order at the bar, what song can drag a shimmy from my rusty chest like a fish hook. In downtown Minneapolis, when the word faggot whizzes past my cheek like a poorly aimed cum shot, I do not yell, I do not snap, I do not send a stampede of sharpened teeth to rearrange his eyebrows, because I know he wasn't talking to me. When the man outside my apartment pinned me to the sidewalk like a moth between the glass, I was impressed that race had nothing to do with it. Even though he hated me, even though he spit in my face, even though he called me a faggot, I was thankful he could tell. Forgive me. I do consider myself lucky enough to still have a body. I am lucky enough to have an appearance that is easier to digest. Going southbound on I-35, we end up at a truck stop. It is 4 a.m. In, in the middle of nowhere, let's say Nebraska or Iowa or somewhere where the brown boy becomes aware of all the exit signs. And I know I shouldn't judge a bullet by its casing, but I've read all the articles, seen this movie too many times to not predict the ending, but I am lucky. I'm here with a car full of white friends. My friend Spencer swirls in the middle of the gas station like some Main Street marquee. Most people just assume he is gay without even asking. He wears his cliche like a proud mother or a bullseye. The guns, they don't even notice me. My skin is no longer the meal they are hungry for. No need to be splayed and stuffed. No need for brown boy to become a welcome mat. Another ghost haunting a trigger finger. They want to hang your head proud above their mantle. So shimmy those bullets out of your chest, kid. You, a beautiful throw rug. You, the bravest fish in the barrel. And I know how it sounds to feel guilty about your safety, about not being more flammable, to consider your body a hiding spot, to watch your own blood spill from someone else. But when I hear a man, cough the word faggot like a possessed shotgun. I do not flinch. I do not fix my posture. I am not scared. I know he wasn't talking to me. 
So please welcome up the founder of Button Poetry, Sam Cook. How you guys doing? So let's give it up for the uh, for the incredible Avant Garden as well. This is a beautiful venue. Thank you all for having us. We're real happy to be here. So how do you guys feel about nerdy poetry? Nerds? All right. I, I got my nerds. The rest of you, I apologize in advance. This isn't for you. We met in the library. She sat down across from me, dropped a stack of books between us like a paper exclamation point and said, I don't feel much like studying. And there was a part of me that really wanted to stay focused on the following day's calculus exam, but whatever part it was, I'd never really heard about it in biology, so I ignored it. And to this day, my epidermis thanks me because that girl licked me from neck to knee. I was transfixed in a moment of mathematical clarity. The world's I knew it turned to numbers. It turned out the texture of this girl's tongue concealed original algorithms of love, the friction of which she applied to mine a kiss. In which we shared one twist in topography of taste buds, our bodies grinding across one of the continents of the forces as primal and furious as plate tectonic. She was lava! I was quake. And for a moment, even the need for eloquence and agony abandoned me. My life became a sine wave like study, fuck, study, fuck, study, fuck, study, fuck, study, fuck, deaf to everything but her between those troughs and peaks. And this, this was peace. But I still had trouble sleeping. I would wake from nightmares, still speaking frantic in the spiral logic of the dream. And she would say to me, be easy, sweet boy. Let my arms around you be the only borders you are concerned with and the motions between us be this new country's only congress. Let your worried mind hang like a full moon, reflecting the light of our fusion. Now, I had barely finished saying, that's no moon, it's a space station, when she said, our atoms are solar systems and all of mine are shining on you. Our molecules, galaxies, far, far away. My hand on your chest just launched a squadron of X-wing flying at warp nine for that Death Star in your head and I love you like the Force. All-encompassing, all-inclusive. I love you like the force guiding glowing torpedoes of orgasm from synapse to axon on a trench run bullseye course for your reactor core. <laughs> and I tell you, I actually have no idea how she said any of that with a straight face. <clears throat> but I was so charmed, I never even mentioned that warp drives are not from Star Wars. <clears throat> They are from Star Trek! Be easy, she said, and let her fingers play across the surface of my chest as the spiral logic of the dream flowed back into me, molten gold and make-believe. I began to recognize the ratio of time between touches. She was tapping out the Fibonacci sequence and counterpoint to the sine waves of my breath. And I tell you, I have no idea how I ever let anyone tell me math was not sexy because she is the inspiration for the equation, the reason that once I am done with products and sums, the only thing I wanna be is one of two parallel lines lying beside her. Keep that going for the next poet. Give it up for Dylan Garrity!
first time I ever danced with a girl, she leaned in close and asked me, why are your arms so stiff? Dancing with you is like dancing with a mannequin if they made mannequins super bony and with very sweaty palms. And to be fair, my palms were sweaty and simultaneously ice cold. I was and continue to be a miracle of physics. Who knew that adult hands could be supported by wrists that a five-year-old or baby duck could easily snap? This may be a small part of why I spent my teenage years absolutely failing with women. In middle school, I would ask girls who I liked how much they weighed to see if I might weigh more. Numbers made me excited. I loved math. I used to think this meant everyone else loved math too. In high school, I became intimate with the friend zone. With one girl, I spent so many years in the friend zone, I didn't even realize I was in it. She was from Sweden, so I guess this was literally Stockholm Syndrome. I would go over to her house and help her with calculus, and I would comfort her and tell her how she was beautiful, or how her boyfriend was a dick, or how integrals are related to derivatives. Eventually, I spent so long in the friend zone, I grew to think of it as some kind of magical home away from home, some lush forest filled with unicorns and elves and puppies, none of whom were getting laid. I was on an adventure, constantly uncover uncovering new questions about this mystical place. Are you in the friend zone if they're sleeping with other people and not telling you about it? Are you in the friend zone if they tell you they would totally marry you in 15 years? Why would you marry me in 15 years? In 15 years, I'll probably still be a virgin because you never slept with me. A few months after my first girlfriend and I broke up, I heard that she lost her virginity to the next guy she dated. And at the time, I thought of this as a betrayal, not her choice, as if she owed me something. A newspaper column wants to find the friend zone as follows. She discusses her love life with him and has the audacity to ask his advice on it. He performs favors for her. He does everything a boyfriend would do, but gets no benefits. As if the only reason to be a good friend or a decent fucking human is if you get something in exchange. The problem is, when I started thinking of myself as a savior, I ended up thinking of myself as a savior with a salary. You put in your hours as a nice guy and sex is just a living wage, but sex is not a transaction. Sex is not a handshake to seal some deal. That girl did not owe me anything. Last year, I heard that her house was broken into in a neighborhood known for sexual assault. Nothing happened to her. We all know the statistics. A rapist is more likely to be somebody that you know. The boogeyman, the stranger in the alley is real, but less real than we are. We all know the statistics, but we don't know how to accept how easily we can become part of the problem. You cannot kill a monster until you're willing to see it in the mirror, until you recognize its shape in your own skin. Thank you. Um, I'm gonna do another poem before bringing Sam and Huey back up. Um, Sam already asked how many of you are nerds, so I don't even need to do that again for this poem. It's great. Uh, as I mentioned in my previous poem briefly, I was a huge fucking nerd as a kid, and I loved math. My life in prime numbers. Two. I know I should start at the beginning, but prime numbers don't work that way. I have no true firsts, only blankets and low songs, my mother's black hair with curls bigger than my fists. Three, I remember building volcanoes in the sandbox. I used water to make quicksand, pretended it was lava. I loved turning that dust into something that could stick. 
I'm not so good at putting things together anymore. Five, at every family dinner, my father spent the whole meal scrawling equations onto paper napkins. He'd pull me over with his bare paws. Watch closely, he said. These are the prime numbers. They cannot be divided by anything but themselves. If you put them together, you can make anything. Tell me, what's the biggest number you can think of? I don't know, Dad, a million. Sure, Dylan, a million. Now, imagine a million-story building splitting itself into floors, each one so sturdy they create the impossible. You are strong enough to build something impossible. Seven. My first diary entry, verbatim. Today was Christmas. I got a Lego spaceship. Also, my cat died. Write more tomorrow. Eleven. One afternoon, my father hiked with me to the top of the hill his bad knee creaking against his skin like a tire swing on the trees. I found names and dates carved by older men, a last record of their youth, a love song they wouldn't remember, 13. When the teachers found a bomb threat taped to a locker between the homecoming invitations, they shuffled us home early. I did not go home. I left my childhood behind at that school and ran to a rooftop five blocks away, waiting for the cloud of smoke I imagined must one day come. 17. Prime numbers have no logic. They are found through endless testing. That year, a computer discovered the largest one yet known. So I stopped trusting my own hands, thinking those wires must be stronger. I spent the whole year searching for myself in small things. I forgot about treetops, about spaceships and volcanoes. 19, there's something dangerous now about saying the word tomorrow, like I will write more tomorrow, or I'm going to learn to love better tomorrow, or tomorrow I will get myself up out of this casket, but not till tomorrow, not till tomorrow. 23, I know I should start at the beginning, but maybe we don't work that way. Maybe it is never too late to learn how to run again. When we are children, we know that we can build anything. Why are we taught that growing up means abandoning that truth? My voice may be low now, but my songs are still loud. We are instruments carved from tree trunks, melodies thick as quicksand. We are midnight guitars, unnamed chords. We are endlessly testing. Regardless of our patterns, we remain unpredictable. 23, 29, 31, 37, 41, 43. What's the biggest number you can think of? Thank you. And please keep that applause going for Hugh Win. You can find Button Poetry on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, all that, but to find it all in one place, go to buttonpoetry.com. That's where you can also find their store and buy some of their books. time, the only memories I had of that year were of little Billy from the eighth floor floating dead in the pool, and how angry the rest of the tenants were when they drained and filled the pool with cement, or how that summer the heat dragged its endless skin across our bones. Memory is the funniest character in the story. When I think of that year, no one has a face. Memory is an asshole. 
It locked my keys in my car. It stole my wallet. It's fluent in English and fucks up everyone's name. It stopped watering the plants and took my grandmother's whole body. I wake up every morning thankful that my apartment did not burn down. That the kettle whistling into the night was just my mind filling the empty spaces. The first memory I had of being molested did not come until nine years later. At first, I thought it a dream. I thought it a movie. I thought it was my mind filling the empty spaces with noise. I was just sitting on a bus, staring at a stranger's hands. My memory has failed me. I look for her name and only see hands. I look for her face and only see hands. They say who? They say how, 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 how could you not remember? How could you not know? How could you sleep with her hair in your throat? How could you, how could you, how could you? Give us her name and we will give you back your childhood. Show us where and we will show you how to heal if it's true. What they say about memory being a series of rooms then behind some locked door, a wicked apothecary, her fingers trapped in jars, her hair growing like wild vines along the walls somewhere in that story, I am still a boy. I am nine years old, filling my body with cement to drown out the ghost. I'm a statue of a boy. I'm 23, and all I do is sink. All I do is look for a haunting. My memory, an exorcism. My memory, a hallway of locked doors. My memory, the sun bleaching away the shadows. They say, give us details, so I give them my body. They say, give us proof, so I give them my body, which is to say, if you cut me open, if you dissect this trauma, you will find a pair of handprints, a nine-year-old boy fossilized in cement. So this is going to be my last poem of the night, and it's kind of a response poem to that last poem I just read. Um, has an Raise your hand if you've ever been asked a very stupid question and you wanted to, to headbutt the person that asked you it, but like your mama taught you better than that? Most of you, okay. Since my first lesson in being a boy was silence, I did not know the appropriate response where a woman approaches me after a poetry reading and asks, do you think you're gay because you were molested as a child? I wanted to say no, of course not, go away, but instead I stared and watched her as she rambled on about her children. I think about my own mother, how she called me diseased, called me infected when I told her I was gay, how she needed me to justify my sexuality. I can't help but look, look at this woman's face, how it looks nothing like my mother's. Her freckles, her blonde eyebrows, her strange nose. I fix my hair in the reflection of her glasses and wonder if my haircut too was the result of molestation. What about my eyesight? What about my shoes? What about my allergies to dogs? I wonder why her teeth are so fucking weird. Her teeth are so white, they look gray, they look like tombstones, they look like little fucking pebbles, and I wonder what happened. What past trauma gave her that smile, and now I'm thinking about her children. If one were to happen to be gay, would she look for a pair of hands to blame? I want to ask her, do you think this is how fate works? Maybe trauma is a cocoon or dressing room. Maybe everything I am now is the result of every mouth that has come before. You were 
asking me if my sexuality is a side effect. You are asking me my origin story. I do not need a diagnosis. I was not made this way. My rapist is not a god. My rapist does not get credit for all that I am. There will be no acceptance speech. There will be no trophy shaped like a body. My life is not the aftermath of a car crash. My love is not the result of silence. My body is not made of hands reaching for a throat. Am I gay because I was raped? Fuck you. 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 No. Of course not. Go away. Uh, I'm gonna read a few poems too. Maybe only one, and it's gonna be incredible. You know, it's the only one. You gotta go buy it from over there. Maybe that's the only book that Hugh will ever write. So that was an. What was that? He also broke a glass. Multi-talented. <clears throat> Shameless self-plug. We travel around the country, shooting video, performing poetry, and we also sell books. Um, Dylan and I both have like handmade, homemade project of love chapbooks that we bring around with us. They're great. This is mine. I like it a lot. Huey, however, has a beautiful, perfect bound book on right bloody, which is you guys might have heard of. They're kind of attached to like Austin and Houston and Dallas and Texas these days, I hear. So um, anyway, they're over there at those little tables. We accept credit cards. We'll give you great deals. We also give free hugs. So come talk to us. We like that a lot. So now enough of that. I'm going to give you guys a choice. Choose your own adventure poem. Either you can hear a um, poem about loss, uh, a beautiful, happy, intense, that's not the right word, happy does not belong there in that poem. Poem about loss really means a lot to me about a close friend of mine, or off the telephone, a poem about union and joining that I wrote for my little sister's wedding. So it's, ooh, wedding venue. It seems faded. <clears throat> no sadness. I'm sorry if you were going to vote for something sad, you don't get it. So uh, my little sister is named Emma. Uh, her now husband is named Greg. Uh, they asked me to come uh, be part of their wedding and read a poem for them, which I wrote. This is that poem, and it's called For Emma and Greg. If you couldn't, yeah, okay, cool. I imagine the two of you, hand in hand, balancing your way across a pipe that spans a chasm. Together, your steps are sure the path is clear and the fall endless. Around you, a thousand tiny campfires flicker into view. The night sky erupts, bug zapper blue, a Milky Way electric. We tell ourselves the word love. We write it in sparklers and surround it with our favorite names. We carve it into the bark of trees that have watched us grow older. Love, we say, this must be love. When we were children, love was a song we kids chirped along with from the back seat of our mother's minivan, our tiny voices splashing happily as we joined the few words of love we knew to all these others. You must give yourself to love, we sang, like the bramble and the rose. We must dance a little closer in the aisles of the five and dime. As we grow older, we find ourselves searching for the words to our favorite love songs on the lips of strangers. We question, we demand, young fools waiting for the rhyme. But lovers do not finally sit down at the same table. 
They are the song stuck in the other's head as they sit. It is so easy to see love in the song, but not the storm. In sunset, but not in shadow. It is so easy to let things be miraculous for someone else, somewhere else. But we so rarely give ourselves these same blessings. So I do not imagine you. Spotlit by helicopters, ballroom dancing atop Mount Kilimanjaro while the snow settles on the cello section. Instead, I imagine the two of you, fingers jigsawed together, shimmying across a chasm balanced on a thin pipe that streams to stretch from nowhere to nowhere and serve no purpose but to dangle your two hearts above the abyss. People will tell you that love is the tight grip, the gentle touch, the careful step, but it is the fall also. They will tell you it is a ring or a locket or a necklace of pretty words. Love, though, is the moments you dare to look down. It is the contemplation of a fall with no bottom. It is accepting that you are but two grains of dust circling one another in the dark. Let this moment be magnificent. Let it be the first night in Paris, the language still indecipherable birdsong, but still beautiful in your ears. Let this moment be so immense that it takes everyone here just to remember the details, the crinkle of your two smiles the brush of hair against forehead. Let this moment be the largest word falling from your mouths with no end. Love, love, love. Rumi wrote about God in code. One tale is that his Sufi religion was illegal during his lifetime and so, by concealing his reverence for the divine in the imagery of vice, by in fact hiding God in the imagery of alcohol, Rumi was able to continue his sacred tradition unhindered. The poet Tupac wrote about violence and revolution. Hidden in the oppression of this society, one tale is that his very race was illegal during his lifetime, and so, by concealing his reverence for his own people, Tupac was able to continue his sacred tradition unhindered. The poet Christ did not conceal God in his writing. He was killed for his beliefs and then raised from the dead in the stories of his followers. The poet Tupac was killed for his beliefs and then raised from the dead by non-believers in the desert of Southern California on an ancient indigenous burial ground turned polo field turned music festival where brown people once buried their dead and white kids like me now get high. What privilege to dance on graves whose names we do not know. In 2012, at the Coachella Music Festival with 85,000 gathered to watch, the poet Tupac was resurrected as a hologram by the very people he had concealed his prayers from. They transformed his flesh to light and forced him to pray and to pray. They showed the masses his God would not come. In this country, the poet Christ is primarily worshipped by those who wish him white. 
who choose not to think of him as a man oppressed for his race, who choose not to think of Christ as a product of human politics. Instead, they pray to his body nailed to the cross he was killed on, call his murder a miracle, and then oppress in his name. The American translations of Rumi are among the world's most popular poetry. Yet, their translator speaks no Persian, Farsi, or Dari, no Arabic, no Middle Eastern language whatsoever, and his translations neatly sidestep any reference to oppression. These are illusions crafted for white folk, for me, to help me keep my breakfast down while I read the newspaper, to help me swallow bullshit like post-racial America. And so... The hologram will never tell us the poet Tupac came from a family of black revolutionaries. The hologram will never tell us the poet Tupac died violently as a result of his own violence and that of a violent system. The hologram says nothing about institutionalized racism, nothing about racism at all. Even now, in this poem, I know what privilege it is to speak on someone else's oppression to speak on three texts with all the same pages ripped out, all the same words redacted, oppression, revolution, race, all too absent. It is an old trick, a black poet, a Sufi prayer, a Jewish preacher, all turned into white prophets. It is an old trick. It is so easy to make someone speak once they are dead. for Dylan Garrity! Yo, uh, thank you all again for coming out to this awesome show. Thanks, Amir, to bringing us out here. Give a huge round of applause again for Huey and Sam. One final poem. Thank you all again. This is the story of my grandfather. When he was 19 years old, his right hand was crushed by a printing press. He was supposed to lose the hand, but a young doctor saved it just in time for the war. This is the story of the war. My grandfather repaired tanks. Behind the front lines, away from the cameras, he would pull pieces of dead men from the machines and send the machines back out to the field. This is the story of the war a decade later. Back then, you didn't talk about depression. There was no such thing as PTSD. When my uncle, age seven, asked him who won the war, my grandfather said, nobody. This is the story of my grandfather, the machinist. I have a newspaper article from 1981, a story about the Nobel Prize for Physics, a photograph of the winner, a Harvard man standing by his machines. This man is not my grandfather. Beneath the photo, my grandfather has written, I designed and built almost everything in this picture. My grandmother says that they worked together for 10 years, but the physicist never even remembered his name. This is the problem with stories. 
they have to leave something out. The, the editor cuts a line and someone's face fades. The editor says 200 words or less and suddenly a whole family goes missing. The spotlight isn't about the light, it's how it makes everything around it dark. My grandfather's face is erased from every story. The machine survives, but the man who made it doesn't. The machine makes the photo, but its maker is out of frame. But we choose where to point the camera. We can choose how to tell the story. We can choose what clothing the hero wears. I could tell you this is a story about a soldier, or I could tell you this is a story about the blue collar man, but really, this is just the story of my grandfather. I did not know him. I was born too late, but my family tells me his name, Alfred Franzosa. I know that name might only live in this moment, that there are other stories with greater stakes, but still, I will tell you his name. I will repair this old machine. I will let my grandfather live again because I could not know him when he was living. Once, when he was younger than I am now, his hand was crushed by a printing press, crushed by other people's stories. When it healed, he began to build. He used his hands to build tanks and his hands to build cradles. His hands were the last thing to touch dead soldiers and the first to touch his newborn sons. He built a good family, and that family built me, and now I use my hands to build his story. This story is not a eulogy. A eulogy seals the casket. A eulogy lets no air out. This story is a resurrection. Jesus was not resurrected by God. He was brought back by the people who told his stories. It does not take a miracle to raise the dead, to leave behind the tombstone and take the name with you. Thank you. Thank you all again. Have a great night. Again, you can find more about them at buttonpoetry.com. You can find Right About Now on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter, all that stuff, all under the same name, at Juan Poetry. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Ratings and comments really do help. And you can find me, Davis Land, at davisland.info. And as always, thanks to WCAI in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, for letting me use their studios to record.